Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips and we're joined today by Pete Boardman. Hello Pete. Hi Neil. Thanks for coming on Pete. Would you like to introduce uh, who you are? Yeah, no worries. So my name's Pete Boardman. I am the UK Cranefly Recorder for the Cranefly Recording Scheme alongside a couple of other people. A chap called John Kramer who writes the newsletter for us and Alan Stubbs who founded the Cranefly Recording Scheme back in 1973. So we're very close to our 50th year which will be obviously 2023 and it's the oldest fly recording scheme in in the world my background i am a professional entomologist i work for natural england during the day my crane fly work is all done in my spare time and i've been involved with crane flies probably for getting on for 20 years now we always start our episodes with our recent sightings. And as a guest, Pete, you get to go first. So have you had any interesting wildlife sightings of late? Well, over the past few months, I've been walking the Wales Coastal Path. I sort of started by accident, really, back in April and, and ended up walking from Chester to Carnarvon and about halfway around Anglesey to date. So most of my wildlife sightings this year have been associated with the path. Um, lots of dingy skipper butterflies and wall browns. Uh, wall browns are still just about out on Anglesey. I was there a couple of days ago. Fantastic numbers of crane flies. Obviously, I'm going to be looking at crane flies, <laughs> tubular paleodosa in, in large numbers in the, the more grassy areas alongside the path. But I think what was really noticeable this week were the amount of migratory butterflies, absolutely tons of tortoise shells and uh, small whites, green vein whites, um, red admirals, those sorts of things on every available flower. It was a pretty amazing sighting. Wow. Sounds like a, a good place to walk. That does. I haven't done North Wales yet. I've still only done sort of Pembrokeshire and Mid Wales, but North Wales is on the list of places to go. Um, uh, some, some really interesting places because there, there are several brownfield sites that are coastal, absolutely covered with. Bird's foot trefoil, so so really good for butterflies. Sightings-wise for me, I went to Dungeness last weekend and had a good look around the reserve. Uh, before I went there, though, I popped into Maidstone and saw those stunning wall lizards. Yeah, that was really nice. See, I love seeing those wall lizards. But Dungeness itself, I had a good walk around the reserve. All nice. A few dragonflies around, cormorants, standard stuff. And then I was walking along and someone pointed out a marsh harrier. And their other half went, well, what's that bird above it? And it was a white stork. It's my first white stork in the world. It was probably one of the ones from Net. So up to you if you count it as properly wild or not, because they released a lot there. And then walking around the reserve, I saw the great white egrets, which are typically found there quite often. And the glossy ibis that's been there apparently for two years on and off, uh, or pretty much constantly from what I've heard, which is really nice. And then as I was walking through what is called in the arc pits, I saw some people looking at the ground and was like, hmm, I think they're entomologists. And I started a conversation with them because I was a bit curious who they were. And it turned out one of them was the lovely Miss Penny Metal, who's wrote a wonderful book on her insect sightings in London in her garden, which is well worth checking out. And the other one was a certain Mr. Paul Sterry, who's written pretty much every (laughs) general insect book you've ever come across. There's certainly a few of them on my shelf. I think it's the Wild Guides, Insects of the British Isles or something like that it's called. That's well worth checking out. And I was going down there because that evening I was going looking for some rare crickets and guess where they were going as well. (laughs) So that was quite good. Down at the Bird Observatory, we got shown round by one of the wonderful volunteers there. 
And yeah, it was rather excellent. I saw four new species of Orphotera in one night, which you're not going to do very often uh, when you've been wildlife watching as long as me. I got wood crickets, long-winged coneheads and sickle-bearing bush crickets, all of which have colonised in the last few years. And also saw my first ever British cockroach, which is rather cool. Um, and there are proper wild ones, not ones that live in your kitchen in the UK. A lot of people don't know. That's another subject for a podcast. Before we went walking for the crickets for the sunset, when I arrived, there was 40, very distant, but 40 white stalks flying around. So I think it's safe to say I've seen white stalks in the world now. <laughs> They're amazing birds, aren't they? I, I, I saw some fly over, over Bulgaria many, many years ago when I was on holiday. On, on, there was you know passage and they just kept coming and coming and coming. It was just amazing sight. Oh, wow. I, I did a field trip on my undergrad. We went to Germany. And we had the classic white stalks nesting on a chimney with the camera on it and a yeah. video screen in a nearby shop. It was really nice to see sort of that classic textbook view of them. Absolutely. Such cool birds. Yeah, it'd be great to see them spread across the country, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, Pete, we've got you on to talk crane flies. So I think a good place to start would be, what is a crane fly? Okay, well, a crane fly is a fly that belongs to the suborder Nematocera. So alongside the mosquitoes and midges and St. Mark's flies and, and those sorts of groups of flies, you tell crane flies apart from the other species groups by the fact they have this thing called a transverse suture, which is a, a V-shaped mark on the thorax. So within the true crane flies, there are four different families. Uh, the damsel crane flies, we have four of those in the UK. The hairy-eyed crane flies, there are 20 of those. Uh, the long palped crane flies, which will be the ones that most people are familiar with, the ones that are flying around at the moment. We have 87 species of those. And then we have 229 species of the short palped crane flies in this country. These things are, are really, really widespread. You get them in all sorts of different habitats, anywhere where there's vegetation, anywhere that's that's damp, anywhere that's grassy or there's woodland, woodland soils, you, you'll find them. They breed in a range of substrates. Some of them are aquatic, uh, some breed in moss, some breed in fungi, some breed in in decaying vegetation. But they're very, very common things and they're really important in terms of food provision for lots of other animals, spiders, birds, all sorts of things feed on crane flies. But they're also really, really interesting to study. They come in all sorts of sizes, shapes and forms, colorations. And they have really quite interesting ecologies. They're cool little things. Some people are scared of them because of their dangly legs and stuff. And they're quite big for British insects, I suppose. You've got to appreciate them, if nothing else, as food for so many things at this time of year. You know, they're good things. But I think we need to address the whole daddy long legs issue before we go any further. Because obviously the common name I grew up with them was daddy long legs. But that name can be used for three different groups of animals. I think we'd better address that. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion, particularly with our, our cousins overseas, with the term daddy long legs. It, it's often used in, in America to describe a spider. And other times it's used to describe a harvestman. And traditionally in, in the UK, we've called them, called them daddy long legs. Although there are lots of interesting names they get called. And I, I learned a good one the other day. One of the, the Irish names is Skinny Philip, which I think is a, a wonderful name. That's one of the Scottish names is Big Alistair of the Ponds. Oh, like um, so it'd be great if, if those caught on, wouldn't it, rather than yeah. Daddy Longlegs. Um, Skinny, Skinny Philip. Philip, I like that. Yeah. 
<laughs> look at those skinny Phillips over there. That's a great okay. name. Well, I might take that as a compliment. <laughs> Certainly with my lockdown weight recently. Oh, skinny Phillips. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, marvellous. Linked in with that, isn't there? There's that awful urban myth that daddy long legs have the most poisonous bite, but they can't pierce our skin, which is obviously nonsense. Are the ones flying around at the moment, the, the big common ones, do they not have a mouth? Is that correct? They're unable to feed as adults. Yeah, yeah, that they have these things called palps, which enable them to dab at liquid, but that's about all they can take in. They're like a lot of other invertebrates, things like hawk moths, where they don't feed generally as, as adults. They hatch, and their single task is to find a member of the opposite sex to mate and lay eggs, and then they're done. So generally, they're only about a, a few days or a week maximum. It's just that lots emerge over a period of time, but generally they're only around a few days. And to sort of you know add to your explanation of the of of the myth, absolutely they're completely harmless. And as I said earlier, they're really really important in terms of the food chain. Even the name confusion aside, if, if you say oh the myth must have applied to harvestmen, well harvestmen don't have fangs, they don't have any venom, do they? Um, that's right that's and the right. daddy long leg spider they call them cellar spiders i grew up with them though i've actually got a yeah. few in my house they're the, the big long-legged ones they have got fangs but they are again tiny and it's not particularly potent i think they rely on wrapping up their prey more than biting it as well so i've had to i've had to explain this one myself a few times about environmental education so yeah, yeah it's, it's the number one question we get you don't mind answering it but it's a bit kind of like ah, here we go again <laughs> sometimes yeah. isn't it why are there lots around at the moment? There's also some stupid headlines in the papers. This year, they seem to have latched onto crane flies as the let's scaremonger about something that's harmless in the press. But why are there so many around in September? Yeah, the, well, the two issues there, I think, you know, we probably will talk about the press, actually, because yeah. uh, we've made a bit of a stand in the crane fly recording scheme this year. And, and we've decided not to answer press queries because in, in times gone by when we have answered them, We've seen our words twisted and the context removed and the papers generally just want to report crane flies in, in terms of, of a scare story. And you get these sort of 200 billion sex crazed daddy long legs coming into your homes to mate type headlines, which, OK, you know, there may be a lot, of, a lot of them around, but they certainly aren't coming into your homes to mate. Any that do stumble in through open windows are attracted to light in the same same way. If you moth trap, you'll find that crane flies come to light because they're attracted to light. But they're certainly not coming into your house to mate and they don't do any harm. So just put them in a glass and let them out. The reason there are so many around at this time of year, most of the ones that we're seeing at the moment are a species called Tipula pallidosa. And they breed in all but the very wettest of grassland. They traditionally hatch at this time of year, having been in the ground all year as, as larvae and fed on grass roots. And if the weather is right, i.e. it doesn't get too hot in the summer so that the ground doesn't bake. And so if you think, those of you old enough to think back to the summer of 76, when the whole country suffered a, a prolonged heat wave, the, the, the ground surface, the soil surface completely baked and it prevented any crane flies from getting out or very few from getting out that year. That's not been the case this year. We've had more inclement conditions. We've, we had a, a cool, very damp spring, if you, if you remember back then. It was very cold and chilly. There weren't many invertebrates around on the wing. 
but there was lots going on under the ground. There were plenty of crane flies, which had had a pretty good year last year. and They successfully laid eggs and they were feeding on grassroots. And traditionally, they emerge at this time of year. Actually, the, probably the, the phenology is slightly changing. We're finding that in the south of England, they're flying a little bit later on in the year, emerging a little bit later, maybe a, a week or two compared with 20, 30 years ago. But there always will have been this number around at this time of year. Actually, there probably would have been more if we go back 70, 80, 90, 100 years, particularly before the, the Land Drainage Acts and various associated legislation led to the increase of field drainage. So there always would be good numbers like this around. And it's something I think we should celebrate when we see big hatches of invertebrates, big hatches of crane flies. It shows that, that this particular species is doing OK. Yeah. Is there any fault to why they all come out at once? Because some other species and obviously other insects will come out a bit more spread out. Is this part of this whole overwhelm the predators? Is that kind of the thinking behind it? Yeah. The, well, there's, there's more chance that breeding is going to be successful if they come out en masse. But as I said earlier, you know, they only live for a short period of time and they are spreading themselves out a little bit. It's just that there's a lot of available habitat. They're a success story as crane flies go. The commonest species by far, and it's the one we see. There are many other species that have similar sort of hatches, but in, in smaller numbers because members of the public generally don't observe them. I've witnessed an, on a number of occasions hatches of smaller species that you would be hard-pressed to identify as crane flies. There are some species that don't have any wings as females, and the males are there waiting for them to pounce as the females hatch. In terms of Pallidosa, you know, we're surrounded by suitable habitat, wild grassland, amenity grassland, all sorts of grassland. As long as it isn't absolutely sodden or habitat like a swamp, you're going to get tippy to Pallidosa there. So it's, it's, there's a lot of available habitat. They emerge probably, you know, in total a, a month's period, something like that. But they're doing very, very well. It's great. Yeah, I think most people remember when they're at school. When you first go back after summer, you quite often got a load flying around on all the buildings around the playground. Fine, you went to a school with a football pitch, I guess, mm -hmm. and that sort of field. Another thing they quite often do is shed legs. Is that a predator defence? It is, yeah. My colleague Alan would always say legs are optional extras with crane flies, <laughs> but they, yeah, that's exactly right. They enable them to to get away from predators, or that's that's the theory. The amount I've seen caught in spiders' webs and in birds' beaks in recent days shows that it doesn't always work. It must work to a degree. Yeah, it must do. I've seen just legs in spiders' webs as well. So obviously, they're <laughs> Yeah, yeah, get away. Yeah. So let's talk about their life cycle because we, we've kind of touched on it. Well, before we go into that, the female's got the pointy ovipositor, isn't it? And the male's That's got right. a sort of more stubby abdomen. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, as a child, I remember getting it the wrong way around because you think the one with the long pointy thing is the male for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. Should we start with the life cycle? Yeah. Depending what species it is and, and the associated habitat, eggs are laid. If it's to be the pallidosa, the common thing that's flying around at the moment, it's going to be laying in grassland and soil. It could be laying in moss or damp habitats, it could be laying at, at the water's edge in some cases. So the eggs then sort of sit there for a little while and hatch. Like all other invertebrates, they go through four different instars in the growth of the larvae. Again, depending on which species we're looking at, it can be a single generation like Tipida pallidosa. It can be multi-generations like some of the short palp crane flies where there are a couple of different hatches a year. One of the long palp crane flies called Tipula rufina 
is the thing that we see in the early spring. It emerges from often from gutters where there's sort of sludgy, mossy type material in. They'll breed in that and then um, you get a second generation later in the year and they then hibernate as, as adults. So it's a range of different strategies that, that species use to, to get through the year. But generally it's an egg and then four different instars of larvae and then adult. Yeah, because there's that picture that adult emerging from a pupa in some moss in some wood they timed it just right it's a really lovely picture i think every now and again you do come across that and in the same way you know as happens with with dragonflies and, and other creatures that, that emerge like that they're incredibly vulnerable in that position i've watched a species called, called lipsothrix remota do that which is a dead wood species and it, it hatches out of the wood from its its larval case and it takes a little bit of time for its wings to pump up in the same way that a dragonfly does. As I say, it's incredibly vulnerable to, to attack by, by birds and other predators while that's happening. Probably quite often craneflies will do this either at night or very early in the morning, and that'll avoid some attention. But I've certainly seen sparrows picking them off. It's down to the look of the draw, I suppose. Yeah, I've seen sparrows harvesting tens of damselflies doing exactly the same. So <laughs> they're, yeah. they're pretty resourceful birds, sparrows. The reason they were so common. Why you're here, I think I'll ask you a question. Quite often in, oh, it'd be sort of mainly winter time. I've turned over a log in some damp woodland and there's been lots of leathery maggots underneath. Would they be crane flies likely to be them, do you think? A, a group of about 10 to 20 of them together. Is that possible? Possibly could be, yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, under logs, the habitat is less likely to, to freeze or, or dry out. A lot of crane fly larvae, a lot of other insect larvae are, are very prone to desiccation or freezing. And it makes sense that they would congregate in places where they're, they're more likely not to freeze or not to dry out. As I've always said to any children that find them, I think they're crane flies, but I'm not sure. So uh, at least I can uh, say I'm a bit more sure they are now. <laughs> they're generally sort of long-bodied, long wings and long legs, aren't they, body plan? But they're quite a diverse group, aren't they? The colours and all that grey-brown of the common one we're finding at the moment, because I've seen some sort of yellow and black, almost wasp mimic one. Are they called tiger crane flies? That's that right, it? yeah. Yeah, they're within the genus Nephrotoma. And they cover you know, quite a reasonable range of types of coloration. Some of them are very, very yellow. Some of them have that sort of mixed yellow and black stripes that are very similar to parasitic wasps or, or similar creatures. So they belong to the Nephrotoma genus. They're a group of crane flies that come in a variety of colours, yellow and black, or, or, or more or less all yellow. They live in a whole range of different habitats. Probably the most convincing wasp mimic is one called Nephrotoma crocata that's associated often with brownfield sites. It, it likes sandy or pebbly substrates, sometimes peat, sometimes limestone quarries. But that's certainly the most wasp-like of the Nephrotomas. And it's quite a spectacular insect with, with black and yellow bands. Yeah, there's, there's some pretty cool ones out there. I and mean, I've seen some of the larvae have a bit of diversity, don't they? Because you've got the phantom crane fly larva. They've got a long tail, haven't they? Like a rat tail maggot type thing. Yeah, in. exactly that. And that's a breathing tube. The, the rat tail maggots live in, in ponds or, or water bodies or, or small puddles that have a very low concentration of oxygen. So they need a little bit of help to breathe and they stick their tube out in oxygen. Some of the crane flies are 
almost like caterpillars, those that belong to the, the family of damsel craneflies all, all feed on bryophytes, some terrestrially and some aquatically. Anyone who's ever looked for white-faced darter, dragonfly larvae and sphagnum moths may have come across one of the species of damsel cranefly. It lives in, in amongst sphagnum and you can be parting sphagnum moss looking for the dragonfly larvae and you see this thing that looks like a bit of moving sphagnum and it's actually the, the larvae of this particular species. So they come in a whole variety of forms and one of the things about cranefly larvae generally is there are still some species that we don't know what the larvae does. We don't know where the larvae live, for instance. And when I did my MSC back in the day, one of the species that I was looking for hadn't had its larva described. And I managed to find some and rear them out, um, which was quite exciting. Mm. So it also shows you that you know anybody getting involved in crane flies can make interesting discoveries and find out new information, which has got to be good fun. Oh, marvellous. Because of course, some of the aquatic larvae are pretty cool. The pedica crane flies, they look like, I guess, like a leather jacket to start with, don't they? And then, But then you get to the head end and they've got a massive pair of pincers on them because they're predatory. That's <laughs> right. That's such, right, yeah. That's such a weird um, thing of crane flies, isn't it? Yeah, is it so in, in my head, it is anyway. Yeah, they belong to the, the group of hairy-eyed crane flies. There are 20 in this country. There are two specific groups, one feeding in fungi, so a terrestrial but all the others are, are aquatic or semi-aquatic, and they're all predatory. As I said earlier, most crane flies live in vegetable matter or, or rotten wood, feeding on vegetable matter. But yeah, we certainly we have predatory crane flies. Don't tell the press, anybody. Oh God, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> the sun got hold of they, they have a picture of a worm from tremors a graboid i think if they did that that's my first thought or maybe the sarlacc pit in uh, star wars or something i don't know oh dear and of course we can't mention aquatic crane fly larva without talking about the breathing apparatus at the rear end it looks like the, the best description i come up with when i talk about it is it looks like two hands put together with two holes in the palm basically isn't it it's a really weird water repellent yeah. organ at the end there yeah, it's called an anal plate and it has the ability of often looking really, really face-like. Yeah. Um, it has these two round holes and a further hole below that in a sort of triangular structure. The two round holes that look like eyes on the anal structure are, are spiracles. And so for the land-based creatures, they're breathing in oxygen. And then below that is the anal opening where obviously things they feed on and the other waste products are expelled. They're remarkable in their shape and form. And if you ever have uh, 10 minutes to, to kill and you're bored and you have a computer or a phone with you, please do look up cranefly larvae and see some of the wonderful forms. It's really, really entertaining. Yeah, they're, they're brilliant little things. There's a, there's a few websites out there. You might even come across a couple of my pictures, especially when you Google Pedica on like Google Images. I've come up quite high, I think, now, because I don't think anyone else has bothered to photograph them <laughs> properly. They're great things. I'd love to see them again. But the only place I've found one with a proper decent set of jaws was in the Highlands of Scotland. And I'm not going to go up there. Well, who knows? Maybe might get up there next year. We'll see. I'll have to get in a stream again. That was one of the best streams ever dipped. Um, sorry, I should say burn. It was in Scotland, wasn't it? Not stream. <laughs> yeah. Such a wonderful group. Such overlooked even by myself i have to admit i'm getting more into my flies we can blame certain dr erica McAllister for that so if people are trying to get into crane flies is there some resources they can look at books websites that would help yeah if you're on twitter if you check out at crs tipula i 
host that site and help with identification. You can post photographs. I can direct you to various resources that the scheme has for helping to identify species. Of big excitement really is the new book. There's a book called British Crane Flies that's just been released after somewhere near 30 years in preparation, which is an incredible amount of time, but it's been worth the wait. It basically has identification keys to all the UK species, lots of photographs of wings of crane flies and all the ecological information that, that we are aware of of British species. So it's an absolute feast of information for anybody who's interested. But if you're not quite ready to get into as a whole yet on mass and, and paying £30 on a book is a bit much, yeah, just join us on Twitter and follow the posts of what people are doing. We're starting to attract quite a number of followers, particularly during this time of year with the amount of crane flies around, they're taking photographs, putting them on the site and asking us to identify them. Then if you get a little bit more keen, take some photographs and put them on iRecord, generally the place we get most of our records from people doing in that so please if you do see any crane flies take a photograph stick it on iRecord it's as easy as that even if you can't identify it further than crane fly there's a reasonable chance that one of us can and that will add to our database I had a quick look the other day is it the ditterists forum page yeah that they host uh, a page of ours that has some of these copies of old newsletters and uh, and some of the, the cribs that we've produced to certain groups of species including the, the tiger crane flies we spoke about earlier yeah that's where i got the name from <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> brilliant yes yeah, so it seems like a great little resource i wasn't aware of it until i looked this weekend so i'm gonna have a crack at iding some of the crane flies i photographed this year and then i'll send you some tagged images on twitter so you can tell me if i'm right or not fantastic well pete it's been fantastic having you on that's been a pleasure it's been really interesting talking about crane flies a group i've obviously been familiar with since since my childhood days at school etc neither looked too closely at. i used to look at the tiger ones i found because they're pretty cool and i'm going to make a particular effort to photograph from this year i think and get a few really? nice shots so there you go guys if you want to go and check out some crane flies go follow pete on twitter is there anywhere yeah. on facebook people can follow you pete there's the uk crane fly recording scheme page that's run by a couple of chaps and they'd be very happy to receive your photos and your sightings i'll make sure i join that thanks again pete been absolutely fascinating i'll see you next time everybody Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UKWildlifePodcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UKWildlifePod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips. The music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.